We're going to turn our attention to God's Word now. So if you have a Bible, let's turn it to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 51 through 62. But before I read, I just want to let you know that I am not preaching this sermon. Uh, one of my favorite people in the entire world, Matt Whitney, is preaching this sermon. Can I get an amen? Yeah, come on. Uh, this brother is a, is a dear brother, and we've been on this journey together for 13 years in this church. Uh, we used to serve as interns together in this church. Uh, one of our internships was longer than the other, but uh, uh, Matt is a, is a dear brother. He's a life group leader in this church. He's previously served as a deacon and as an elder in this church, and he has a passion to bring God's Word to God's people. So if you will, please stand with me as I read the text. This is in Luke chapter 9, starting in 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word for God's people. Come on up, Matt. Thanks. Is uh, audio working? Sounds like it. Um, join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning excited and expectant that you will bring clarity to a tough text. And so I pray today for clarity, for conviction, and for faith to grow in your people. I'm reminded of the words of 2 Corinthians 5, that we all, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of Jesus and being transformed into that same image. And so I pray above anything else that through my words and through our time together this morning that we would see the face of Jesus, see it clearly, see it in its stark beauty, and allow it to transform our lives. So be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> so uh, starting a sermon is a lot like starting a road trip in the sense that you you got to start somewhere. And it's also similar in the sense that when I'm the one in the driver's seat, it usually takes a little longer than you expected, no matter how much pressure you put on me. And partway through, hi, kiddo, you're going to wonder if I even know where I'm going. Anyway, <clears throat> um, in our journey so far through the Gospel of Luke, today we are making a pivotal turn. Through chapter 8, Luke has been answering the question for us, who is Jesus? By telling us about his birth, his ministry, his teachings, his miracles. Then about halfway through chapter 9, Luke answers the question for us through the voice of Peter. In verse 20, he says, Who is Jesus? He is the Christ, 
the Son of God. But what does that even mean? Well, last week, for a moment in time, three of Jesus' closest disciples got a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus' appearance was transformed. And like newborns reacting to sunlight for the first time, the disciples could barely stand the radiance of his presence. And so now, how do you respond to a vision like that? And we hear from another voice. This time, the voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. That's what Rich talked about last week. Now, I don't, I don't love everything that N.T. Wright has to say, but he wasn't N.T. wrong when he said this. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, and that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, he goes on to say, unable to cope with either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. And I desperately, desperately do not want us to settle for that shallow world in between. And so what does it look like not to settle? This week, in verse 51, we join Jesus as he sets his face to Jerusalem. In doing so, Luke, having now answered the question of who Jesus is, invites us now to follow him. And so in following Jesus, we're confronted with the paradox of who Jesus is. Now, what is a paradox? Obviously, I've put it up here on the screen for you, but I've defined it for us as this. It is the seemingly contradictory statement of, or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. Something that seems contradictory, but turns out to be true. So in the text we just read, class, is Jesus compassionate, merciful, kind, and humble? Or is he severe, consuming, authoritative, and glorious? And the answer is... Yes, thank you. Well done. A plus, that's the only question on the quiz today. This is the paradox. Now, I'm going to show my cards here. What do I want you to do as a result of this message? I want you to change. There's this, this pressure that I feel that, that I want you to see Jesus for who he is and then realize in seeing him that he is worth everything. He is worth everything everything. He is worth the loss of everything and infinitely more. And the only way that I know how to stay out of the shallows is to plunge ourselves directly into the depths of his character. And so we must face the hurricane head on. We must allow the fire to work its way through us, and we must allow his life to define our own. And so let's look at this paradox together, and we'll do this in two scenes and what I guess I'm calling an end cap today. I was trying to think of a better way to do it, but whatever. We're going to see it as the tender-hearted, merciful traveler, the consuming call, and then by the end, we're going to figure out how do we face the paradox, Lord willing. So part one, the tender-hearted traveler, tender-hearted, merciful traveler. Don't want to leave that word out. 
Now we see in verse 51 that Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, and as his traveling companions with him, we are now faced with a refused request, a resentful response, and a required rebuke. Now let's look at this together, verses 51 through 53. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Recall now that Luke is inviting us on these travels with Jesus. And what's the first thing that happens to us? We are rejected. Now, this isn't exactly new for Jesus. He's been rejected in Judea. He's been rejected in Galilee. There was that whole episode in the Gerizines where he delivers the guy from the legion of demons and they ask him to leave afterwards. I mean, the guy, Jesus was, <laughs> the people from his hometown tried to throw him off a cliff. Like, like, it's rough being Jesus out there. But why are the Samaritans rejecting him? Well, it said in our text, his face was set to Jerusalem. So a little bit of historical context. You know, Samaritans, they were the descendants of the northern tribes of Israel. In 1 Kings 12, you read when they separated from the southern kingdom of, of Judah after a fairly massive political fallout. Both kingdoms, to be sure, set about ruining their relationships with God in unique and creative ways. And by unique and creative, I mean idolatry. It's neither unique nor creative. But the Samaritans did it harder and they did it faster. So points for efficiency. They rejected Yahweh straight out of the gate, built an alternative temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, and then their sin eventually led to their overthrow and their deportation by the kingdom of Assyria, who proceeded to mix them together with a bunch of other kingdoms that they conquered. And you know what happens when a bunch of people from a bunch of different places get together and spend a lot of time with one another? They have babies. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> now, now the Jews from Judah... They were also conquered, they were also exiled, but unlike the Samaritans, the Jews returned en masse to Jerusalem. And while they were away, they didn't intermarry or have kids with any of the pagan nations around them. So it was common for Jews to think of these Samaritans not as their brothers, but as these compromised half-breeds who had apostatized from God. I'd heard somewhere that they prayed every day that Samaritans would not inherit eternal life. Don't know if that's true. And there's a lot more to it than that. The Jews wouldn't let the Samaritans join them in rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. When they got back, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. So the Samaritans, in response, decided they were going to build, rebuild their own temple back on Mount Gerizim. But a few hundred years after that, in the Maccabean revolt, some of the Maccabean zealous Jews come and they destroy the temple on Mount Gerizim. That's about 100 years before Jesus. It's a mess. It is, it is not a good thing. All that to say, there is... There is rivalry here. There, there's rival nations, rival histories, rival religions, rival ethnicities. But at its core, these are rival brothers. And so Jesus is rejected here not because of who he is, but because of where he is going and because of this fraught history between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so we read his response, to, or we, we read a response, I should say, to this rejection in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So the rivalry is alive and well among Jesus' disciples. And honestly, don't you just kind of get the sense here that James and John are maybe a little too quick on the draw? 
Like, like they've kind of been, been hoping maybe there will be an opportunity somewhere along the line to call fire down from heaven. And better yet, if it's a bunch of dirty Samaritans, am I right? So, so this is a dumb analogy, but I like puns, and I'll text puns to people. And every once in a while, I swear, like I'll send something, and before I hit send, it's like already disliked. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how that's possible, but it's like some incredible trigger finger stuff. Dumb analogy, but anyway, <laughs> James and John, the sons of thunder, as they're called in Mark's gospel, they're here asking Jesus if they should call down lightning and fire and brimstone to kill a whole town worth of people because they wouldn't let Jesus and his disciples stay at their Motel 6. Now, we'll come back to this later. It's almost certain that they have an Old Testament episode or maybe a couple Old Testament episodes with Elijah in mind calling fire down from heaven. And you may even see a little note at the bottom of your Bibles, like mine has, that says, some manuscripts add the phrase, as Elijah did. Now, I had, at one point, a whole section in mind and how to talk about manuscript variants and the textual tradition and all this sort of stuff. And if you want to talk about that, I will nerd out with you. I'm happy to do that sort of thing. But I want to draw your attention to something else first. Imagine with me. You're trying to start a new religious movement. How likely are you to make the founding leaders of your movement look as bad as James and John do right here? I mean, you wrote Peter in here with the rest of the 12, and you might be excused for wondering if Jesus really knew what he was doing when he called these 12 disciples to follow him. So why include these details? And I think it serves at least two functions. The first is that it indicates that, that these things almost certainly happened. Like, there's no other reason to make the leaders of your new movement look like a bunch of people who were often ignorant, incredibly proud, in, in some cases filled with bigotry and violent hatred, like we see with James and John here. And, and even as we see with Peter, you know, when he denies the Lord, like cowards at the worst possible moments. No reason to share any of this unless it's true. And then the second is this, you know, the disciples are held up in passages like this so that when you look at the Bible, you end up seeing yourself in a mirror. I mean, I don't really know how else to say it other than that if you don't see your own pride, your own ignorance, your own anger, your own bigotry even, your own hatred, your own impulsiveness, your own foolishness in the face of these disciples, if you don't see that, your main problem with the Bible might not be whether or not it's historically reliable, but it may in fact be that you don't have the humility necessary to be a follower of Jesus. And if you're still unsure about Jesus, a good place to start would, to be, would be to recognize your face in the face of his disciples. After all, you've got to start somewhere. Now, for us Christians, there's a sort of freedom that comes from the forgiveness of our sins that allows us to actually face them head on and begin the process of turning away. But I get ahead of myself. Because right now, on this particular road, in verse 55, Jesus turns to his disciples and it says he rebukes them. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, we have seen Jesus' character all throughout the Gospel of Luke up to this point, And we find that he is kind he is compassionate, he is merciful and patient with people, he is drawn to the most put-upon and ostracized members of his culture, and he tends to them with utmost care and compassion and love and gentleness. But here, with these disciples, he turns and he rebukes them. And the word rebuke here, it's, it's not 
a gentle one. Again, you will see that some later manuscripts add the phrase, you do not know what sort of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. And while that reading is almost certainly not from the original text of Luke, I think we can all recognize that there's at least an aroma of truth to it. Now, personally, I imagine Jesus turning to James and John here and simply asking them, like, okay, okay, what have I said at any point here that would make you think that I want you to call fire down from heaven? Like, I remember telling you that when a town rejects you, just wipe the dust off your feet and move on. Like, you guys, you guys were, you were there in chapter 6, right? You were there? Like, I, I'll go over it again. Let me go over it again. Make sure, then you, you tell me, you tell me where I lost you. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, John, John, John look at me, John. John, I need you to look at me because I, I need to know that you're hearing me right now. What did I just say? What did I just say? No, don't, don't look at Bartholomew. He has nothing to do with this. <laughs> anyway, it probably didn't happen like that, but <laughs> there's certainly some intensity to it. And so it has me wondering, you know, is there, is there a word in here for us? Like I've, I've been honestly just, just racking my brain all week thinking like, man, if there's only some political divisions in our culture right now, maybe Jesus would have something to say to us. I mean, if only, if, only, if only there were ethnic rivalries in our culture right now, maybe Jesus would have something to say to us. If only there were animosity and hatred and anger that existed between rival factions within our culture, if only that, then maybe Jesus would have some way he'd want to rebuke us. I'm obviously being facetious here. Because for a long time now, politics has been in the driver's seat, not only of our cultural discourse, but let's be honest, in terms of a lot of our personal ethics as well. And as Christians, again, being honest, it's very tempting for us to allow our political convictions to masquerade as our faith. And this is true to various extents for both conservative and progressive churches. None of us are immune to this temptation. So I want to be clear. I'm not advocating here that we as Christians flop on any of these cultural issues that have clear contradictions with the biblical world. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is, is this. Does your, does your news intake or do your interactions on social media cause you to want to call fire down on your adversaries? Like, Lord, just burn it all down. Now, let me caution you. Anger is one of the devil's favorite drugs. And ironically, if he hooks you on it, He won't destroy your political opponents, but he can do a great job destroying you. And so the question emerges here. Are you on the road with this merciful traveler, or are you, in the immortal words of ACDC, on a highway to hell? Not supposed to be that funny, but... Now, when it comes to our perceived rivals, remember... Jesus' response to this snub from the Samaritans was to actually go ahead and save a bunch of them when we get to the book of Acts as he reclaims the nations to himself uh, and reclaims not only the Samaritans but all the nations of the world back into the family of God. That's, that's the trajectory of this story. Um, I'm going to add this. Okay. I've hesitated to put this in here because obviously I tend to go long. But look with me at verse 56. Uh, 
and they went to another village. You know, I was on a run the other day, and the thought came to mind, like, because of this bad blood that the Samaritans had with God's people in Judea, they, they missed out on an interaction with Jesus. What miracles were left unperformed? What sicknesses went unhealed? What Samaritan sins went unforgiven? And perhaps you find yourself in a similar position today. It's, it may not be the ethnic, religious, and political animosity of the Jews against the Samaritans, but then again, maybe it's a lot more like that than we care to admit. Perhaps your perception of Christians as bigots or ignoramuses or self-righteous culture warriors or fill-in-the-blank, perhaps those perceptions have made Jesus seem unwelcome to you. Or worse yet, perhaps you've had an interaction with a Christian that sounded a lot more like James and John. And so maybe someone brought you here today, I don't know, but you've already written off Jesus because of people, and you know I'm going to use this as the mirror right now, because of people like me. The warning I'd have for you today is that allowing these experiences and biases to stand in the way of a visitation from Christ, well, that would be a shame. And like Jesus avoiding the Samaritan village, it would be a tragedy on top of a tragedy. And I'll leave it there. So that's part one of the paradox. Yeah, I'm going long. I'm sorry. Um, Part two, the consuming call. Our narrative continues on the road in verse 57, when we're introduced to three new characters here, the idealistic but ignorant applicant, the reasonable but reluctant family man, and the noncommittal nostalgist. Obviously, I like doing this sort of thing. We read in verse 57, idealistic but ignorant applicant. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So a young man comes to Jesus, and it doesn't actually say in the text that how old he is, but if you read it carefully, like he's, he's, he's definitely a young man. Like definitely a young man. This young man proclaims his commitment to following Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go. And you can just sort of imagine Peter thinking to himself, like, I, I like this guy. He's a good, good culture fit. Good culture fit, this guy over here. <laughs> okay, not as many of you are in the corporate world. It's fine. One person is. I hear Snickers. Good. Uh, But there's a haunting verse here in in John chapter 2, verse 25. The people want to make Jesus king, and it says in there that he did not entrust himself to them, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, to some extent, the Son of God set aside his omniscience, his all-knowing power, when he came here to walk the road with us. I mean, we see this in stories like the woman with the hemorrhage of blood for 12 years when she touches the cloak of Jesus, gets healed, and Jesus turns and says, who just touched me? But because he was so filled with the Spirit, and he was, he was able to discern and perceive certain spiritual realities about people, he could read the Torah, but he could also read hearts. And so there's something that Jesus perceived in this man, something that was off, you know, something that would keep him from following through on this extraordinary commitment. He perceives the faults and failures of this young man better than this young man perceives them himself. So he turns to the young man and tells him that the beasts have their homes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And as always, I wish I had more time to go into the Daniel 7 background of a phrase like Son of Man, but 
Suffice it to say, Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is God in human form, come to snatch power, and, uh, come to snatch power away from the hands of violent, oppressive, wicked rulers of this world and establish the kingdom of God. Did you guys get that? I stumbled over some words. That's who the Son of Man is in Daniel chapter 7. Now we know, uh, we know from Matthew's account that this man, this young man, I, I believe he's a young man, is a scribe. But for any young Jewish man at that time, the phrase son of man, that sort of phrase is going to create the sort of image in your head that would immediately fill your mind with visions of victory, glory, and majesty. And let's be honest, historically, young men have been the ones to volunteer themselves for the hard things. They'll volunteer to go off to war, to explore the unreached corners of the world, to try, the, to try hard things for the sake of doing hard things. And why? Well, for victory, for glory, and for majesty, and for girls, like, <laughs> definitely for girls. <laughs> now that said, I read the news, you know, as all you do, and I, so I got, I got my concerns about young men in our culture today, but since God has brought more than a few of you around more recently here, I, I want you eyes up here, <laughs> I want you to pay particular attention here. <laughs> Jesus is telling this young man, I'm not going to win in the way that you think I'm going to win. You're, not out, you're, not, you're out here for glory and honor, but what if the only thing I promise you in this world is obscurity and shame? What if victory in the kingdom of God looks like defeat in the kingdoms of this world? What if the wisdom of God looks like foolishness to man? Or heavenly strength looks like earthly weakness. In fact, what if all the paradoxes of the Bible are true? Got water, that was a bad idea. Okay. Now, for the rest of us, you guys too, so keep watching. At a bare minimum, we need to recognize that for all the reasons that Jesus came into the world, for all the various reasons he came into this world, making your life easier and more comfortable was not one of them. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man and his followers sometimes need to sleep under the stars. Now, I'm not saying that this passage means you need to be homeless, obviously, but it does mean something about where you live and how you use your home. Secondly, we need to recognize that following Jesus costs us. It will cost us comfort, it may cost us our reputation, but it really ought to cost us some money. The Christian call here is to live in such a way as to demonstrate that we are not enslaved to money. You cannot serve God and money, said Jesus, for you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And third, and related to the first half of our message, and this is like some inside baseball stuff, so I'm sorry if this is, eh, it's whatever. But there's a lot of chatter in the American church right now about Christian nationalism and for what it's worth, depending on who's talking about it, I'm not necessarily opposed by any stretch of the imagination. But I will say this. If you're the culture warrior type, then I think you need to get yourself acquainted with the way Jesus and the early church won over the culture. If, like James and John, we come with fire and fury, we will lose. But if, like Jesus, we come with love for our enemies, prayer for our political rivals, and acts of love and service toward those who hate us, and I mean really hate us, then we might actually move the chains down the field a little bit. And so maybe, maybe all these calls are a little too idealistic, 
but I'm still sort of a young man myself. And so we move to the reasonable but reluctant family man in verses 59 and 60. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Interestingly, of the three men we meet today, this is the only one that Jesus calls. The other two offer themselves. I don't know what it means, but it definitely means something. But let me start with two clarifications. First, I'm persuaded that this man's dad didn't just die, nor is he sitting at home on his deathbed or something like that. I mean, Jewish funeral protocol of that time would have required this man to be at his father's home if this sort of situation was unfolding. In other words, if dad's on his deathbed, this guy is not out on a road trip with Jesus and the disciples. More likely, his father is just old. So he says, Jesus, let me first, you know, let me make, make all the necessary arrangements. Let me get to my father. Let me get all my father's affairs in order. Let me see him off to the afterlife, and then I'll be freed up to follow you. Second clarification. Jesus is not contradicting the fifth commandment here, the, the honor your father and mother commitment. In fact, if the transfiguration is true, which it is, what he's doing is establishing the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, what's interesting about this man and the next, actually, is the similarity of their response. They both turn to Jesus and say, but first, let me go and dot, dot, dot. Now, I know Jesus' reply here sounds sharp, harsh, but that's only because it is. <laughs> it's harsh. <laughs> but as, as harsh as it sounds for us, I want you to just think about how it sounds for an ancient patriarchal culture. The, the sort of culture where, where family honor and family loyalty mean everything. So in Jesus' day, there was sort of this like top-down pressure of a patriarchal society. And, you know, there's still parts of the world like that today. A lot of Eastern Asia, uh, a lot of parts of the world where you see Hindus and Muslims, like that's, that's some top-down patriarchal culture stuff. And for those who come out of those cultural contexts into Christianity, major part of their story is going to be coming out from underneath the pressure of their families. But in modern middle-class American culture, I would say we tend to deal more with like this bottom-up culture and this inside or bottom-up pressure and inside-out pressure. And so what do I mean by that? Uh, from bottom-up, I'm simply registering here how easy it is for us as parents to place the security and success of our kids as our highest priority. Now, obviously, obviously, again, don't get me wrong here. We read last week, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And so for us as Christians, like between our renewed appreciation of the effects of childhood trauma and the decay of the family unit we see in the culture around us, it is reasonable. It is reasonable for us to invest time and resources into our kids. But there's got to be at least a few of us here who look at Jesus and we understand what he's telling us to do. But between school drop-off and work and soccer practice and piano lessons and whatever else, we look at Jesus and say, I will follow you, but first. And then there's this inside-out pressure as well. And man, I could, I could say a lot here, but I'll try, I'll try to be brief. Uh, the predominant cultural ethic of our time right now is what has been called by scholars self-expressive individualism. In this way of thinking, the unencumbered expression of your internal sense of identity and desire is an unqualified good thing. The ability to express that out in the culture is the highest good. And therefore, anything that stands in the way of you being able to express your true self, is, it just needs to go. It needs to go. And so the call of Jesus we saw earlier in chapter 9 to deny yourself is tantamount to modern blasphemy. 
And the effects of this have been horrific. Teenagers are the canary in the coal mine here, and the more they've imbibed this sort of ethic, the more we see the rates of depression, suicide, and hopelessness increase. So good job, everyone. But we see it in the church too. For instance, if your obligations in your marriage are keeping you from becoming your truest and happiest self, well, then, then honestly, you, you owe it to yourself to get a divorce and move on to a new chapter of your life. I mean, isn't that how it sounds coming from Hollywood all the time? After all, doesn't, and in the church, it would be selling, doesn't God want us to be happy? Isn't that the highest good? Now, returning to this family man, Jesus' harsh reply, leave the dead to bury their dead, is obviously referring to spiritual deadness. And what's the point of that? Well, just like dead bodies are imperceptible of receiving physical sensation, like touch and taste and smell and sight, in a similar manner, anyone who would put something in front of following Jesus has failed to perceive things related to true and eternal spiritual life. And so if you feel the sort, this sort of pressure I've talked about, whether it comes from the top down or the bottom up or the inside out, for Jesus, none of that makes for a good reason for refusing to follow him. Even the best reasons for Jesus are unreasonable. And ironically, dead men can feel these kinds of pressure and they cave to them. And honestly, just because this portion has been very heavy, and I, I, I guess, I don't know, I'm not, no one emails anymore, so I, I don't think I'll get emailed by any of you, but pull me aside afterwards, I guess, if you need clarification. I do want to say this, though. Jesus cares about these things because he cares about you. Augustine said that our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in thee. And these pressures have a habit of distorting our affections and disordering our priorities. And so living men actually feel the pressure of the kingdom of God. And paradoxically, it's that pressure that creates true freedom. And we'll get there shortly. But first, one last potential passenger on our journey, the non-committal nostalgist. Verses 61 and 62. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Like I mentioned with the last guy, the issue is not the request, but the priority. But first, let me say farewell. And Jesus perceived something in this guy that indicated that he would look back. Lot's wife looked back and returned to Sodom. The children of Israel looked back when they came out of Egypt and were in the wilderness. It was, a prover- it was a proverbial wisdom in the time of Jesus that you can't plow a straight line unless your face is set on the task at hand. Now, back then you had one plow and, and so you're doing each of your furrows one by one as your ox pulls the, the tool in front of you. And if you lost your line, that would mean that you would misalign every furrow that came after it. And so it would require just utmost attention. Otherwise, you could diminish your crop through inefficient land use or perhaps damage your equipment if you hit a rock or something like that. Plowing required constant vigilance. And so today, you might say something more like, well, you can't drive in a straight line if you're always looking in the rearview mirror. And Jesus, perceiving this man's heart, realizes that if he's asking for an exception now, he'll be asking for more later. The word fit for the kingdom here would actually more accurately be uh, translated as useful for the kingdom. And Jesus knows that this man's nostalgia uh, for what was or what could have been would stand in the way 
of his commitment to the kingdom. And so at this point, I'm guessing most of you are either really annoyed with me or horrendously depressed. So <laughs> I mean, it's a heavy text. Like, what, what are you going to do with it? Like, the jokes, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. So how can we overcome <clears throat> this wayward ex- the, the wayward expectations of the idealist or the, the traps of reasonable excuses or the nostalgia that would pull our hearts away from full-fledged commitment? Now, uh, this third interaction here actually has direct parallels with an Old Testament story. It's actually another Elijah story. And Jesus certainly had this in mind when he replied. It comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. I'll summarize it for you here. But it's when Elijah calls his successor Elisha. And for all of time, I'll just wish that they had slightly different names. Ironically, uh, when Elijah finds Elisha, Elisha's out there plowing his field with 12 oxen. Elijah throws his coat on on Elisha, and the young man recognizes all of a sudden he's been called by God to be a prophet. He chases after Elijah and yells, let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And do you know what Elijah's response is? Basically, what's that got to do with me? Elisha goes home, kisses his folks, destroys his farming equipment, slaughters his oxen, then cooks his oxen over his burning farm equipment, and then feeds a whole village in this massive goodbye celebration. So obviously, it's not wrong for someone to want to say their goodbyes, but they have to be real goodbyes. So what gave Elisha the inner poise to be able to forsake everything? For Elisha, he perceived the call of God. And that's all it took for him to give up everything. The heavenly pressure of the call of God overcame the top-down, bottom-up, and inside-out pressure of his own culture and his own feelings. So how can we perceive that same sort of pressure? And we get that pressure when we see the beauty of the paradox by staring it straight in the face. So how do we look at the paradox of Jesus? And how does that change us? Like this might be, this is either going to be the most helpful or the most convoluted portion of this message. So Bear with me. Now first, I want to point out here that in light of all the, of this consuming call that we just talked about, there's still like this, this contrast of Jesus' gentleness. Like, Jesus is a perfect gentleman. He will not force himself on anyone. He's laying out the cost in front of us and saying, consider carefully. He's not forcing himself here. Now I'm curious, though, Have any of you ever been bothered by what feels like a paradox between the calls to discipleship that we see from Jesus in the Gospels, uh, and then we get to the letters of the New Testament, and it's all about this free salvation by grace alone? Like, doesn't that, this, this passage, let's be honest, this passage does not sound like grace alone, right? Are any of you bothered by that? Like, not? Okay, fine. I am. (laughs) Like, I'm really bothered by it. And so you look at a text like this that we have in front of us today, and it can just crush you. And it has crushed me over the years. I remember being a college student. I prayed a prayer at a Bible study one day, but then for years afterward, had at best a half-hearted commitment to Jesus, fooling around with girls, taking the words of Jesus only as seriously as it would allow me to continue to live out from my own inside-out pressures. So when God did an actual radical work of grace in my life, and I finally started to turn away from these destructive habits, how am I supposed to read these texts now? Because I'll be honest with you, I put my hand to the plow, and I turned back. Over and over again, I turned back. I still do it today sometimes. 
I mean, I caved to the pressure that I felt from my social circle at that time. I prayed to Jesus with a really idealistic thought that he would just save me and then leave me the hell alone. And praise God he didn't. Praise God he didn't because it would have left me to hell alone. So what do I wish that Matt from 17 years ago would know that I know now? Well, let's look back over this passage because the gospel of grace is threaded right through it. And when we see it, we we will see it in another fire, another face, and in the ascension of Christ. And I promise these will be relatively quick. Now the fire. Now I gave James and John a lot of flack earlier for wanting to call down fire on the Samaritans, but they aren't without precedent. I've already referenced this, but twice in the Old Testament, Elijah calls fire down from God. Once with the prophets of Baal, puts the sacrifice on the altar, calls down the fire from God, fire from God comes down, consumes the sacrifice on the altars, and then Elijah proceeds to just slaughter the prophets of Baal. Old Testament is wild. Then again, in 2 Kings 1, King Ahaziah, he's out to murder Elijah, so he sends a group of 50 soldiers to capture and kill him. Captain of the 50 comes up to Elijah and says, Man of God, come down. Elijah responds, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down on you. Fire falls down from heaven, and they die. So Ahaziah sends another group of soldiers. Captain says, Man of God, come down. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down on you. Whoosh, fire from heaven. Third group comes, and the captain says, Please, please, please just come. Please, I don't want to die. So Elijah comes and tells King Ahaziah, you're going to die, and then bounces. <laughs> I love the Old Testament. I really do. But Elijah could not have known what James and John, could not have known what, what I'm about to tell you, and James and John, they hadn't realized it yet. It's that Jesus did come to bring fire, but it's a different kind of fire altogether. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, if that sounds poetic, it's because it is. And in Hebrew poetry, you say one thing, and then you say the thing again, but in a different way. And the second part informs the the first part, and the first part informs the second part. And so in this case, in terms of baptism, what do we know? Jesus has already been baptized by John the Baptist. So what sort of baptism, baptism is he talking about? Well, if you've been in the church for a while, you know that baptism is a symbol of death. A death to self, a death to the old way of life, and in this case, it's a symbol of Jesus' own death. So we move to another face. And what I wish Matt knew from all those years ago is that there was another face that God had been beholding while mine was turned away. Our passage opened today with the phrase, he set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus turned to Jerusalem where he knew there would be a cross waiting for him. And he never turned back. All of us, Isaiah tells us, have turned away. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The one who never turned his face away allowed the soldiers to pluck the hairs of his beard out from it. He allowed that steely face to be spat upon. He allowed it to cry real tears of sorrow as he approached Jerusalem. And he truly did cry out from the mouth of that face, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face away from me? In all of this, his face, Jesus' face, stayed determined. 
as he prayed to God in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, please remove this cup from me, but not turning aside, he follows up with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so here's the paradox. The fire became flesh in order that the fire of God's judgment would fall on him and not us. Life became alive in order to suffer death on behalf of anyone who would put their trust and faith in him. The floods of God's hurricane of justice plunged Jesus into the depths of death in order that we might be saved from its crushing waves. And when you see the beauty of this paradox, it will displace your hesitations, your misgivings, and your fears. The love of God displayed in the gospel when seen through the eyes of faith is the perfect pressure that displaces all other pressures. Now, I mentioned a long time back that as Christians, realizing that our sins are forgiven is the most powerful tool we have in combating them. And ironically, realizing that salvation comes to you as a free gift is the only way you'll be able to take your hands off of your own life and give yourself fully over to Jesus. I'll say that again. Realizing it's a free gift is the only thing that's going to get you to take your hands off of your own life. So is it grace or works? Well, paradoxically, grace alone is the only thing that does work. And so there's one more little nugget in this passage that I've left more or less undisturbed so far, and that's the opening phrase in this whole thing. A more literal translation of verse 52 says this, When the time was fulfilled for him to ascend to the heavens, he set his face to Jerusalem. John Owen commented on this verse and said, in the, the expression, ascend to the heavens, you have everything included. You have death, resurrection, and ascension all in one. And we spent the last few weeks of the summer talking about the spiritual dimension of the Christian life, and Aaron implored us to live as spiritual victors and not victims, and the ascension of Christ is precisely how we can do that. Now, Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God the Father is the final word on his status and identity. He is truly sinless, yet became sin on our behalf. He is the true human, the Son of Man, and yet he is truly God. He is the great paradox. And so when you read those New Testament letters and Paul tells us that we are in Christ, that means that our, the final word on our status and our identity has also been proclaimed. Ephesians 2 tells us that we have ascended and are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Romans 6 tells us that we've been united with him in a death like his through baptism. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in terms of counting the cost, Paul will say this in his letter to the Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so the choice is in front of us today. Do you live in the shallows of Jesus, professing one set of truths with your mouth, but professing another with the way you live your life? Because that, in fact, would not be a paradox, but a real contradiction. And that would be a great tragedy as well. Or can you walk out of here today as a true paradox? One like Paul, who said he was sorrowful, but always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. 
as having nothing, yet possessing everything, as dying, and behold, we live. As for this journey, you know, there's still a lot of road ahead of us. And I know that you're not supposed to end a sermon quoting someone else, but you got to end somewhere. And as we prepare to behold the paradox of Christ in the bread and wine of communion, let us behold him in the words of Scottish theologian James Stewart. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that little ones nestled in his arms. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love, yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over themselves as they ran from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. And may God grant us the grace and grace alone that is necessary to keep our eyes fixed on him as we trudge this path together. Pray with me. God, do your work now, I would pray. Um, Open up hearts, minds, and lives to the reality of your presence. And may it be that we would keep our hand on the plow, not because it earns us any favor with you, but because Jesus is so worth it, and he compels and controls every aspect of our lives. And so we love him. We want to see more of him, more of him, and less of us. And so grant us at this time to see your face and behold your glory and be transformed. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.